0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marsheldon, and today we are going to talk to Jennifer Brown, one of Canada's most distinguished ethnohistorians. Formerly professor and director of the Centre for Rupert's Land Studies at the University of Winnipeg, Professor Brown fostered a much greater understanding between scholars, the general public, First Nations and Métis communities. Professor Brown grew up in the United States studying archeology span and cultural social anthropology. She obtained her PhD in anthropology at the University of Chicago. Her dissertation research was turned into a very influential book, Strangers in Blood, Fur Trade Company Families in Indian Country that was published by UBC Press in 1980. In 1983, she was hired as an associate professor in history at the University of Winnipeg and moved to Canada, where she had family roots. In 2008, she was elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada in recognition of her academic achievements. She retired from the University of Winnipeg in 2008, but continues to be a very active scholar. So active, in fact, that we are going to talk about two of her recent books. Ojibwe Stories from the Upper Barrens River, A. Irving Hollowell and Adam Bigmouth in Conversation, published in 2018, and An Ethnohistorian in Rupert's Land, Unfinished Conversations, published in 2017. Professor Brown, welcome to Witness to Yesterday and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, please tell us a little bit about your family roots in Canada and how they might have influenced your career choices, including uh, your move to Canada.
1: Well, my parents grew up in Toronto. They both went to the University of Toronto. Uh, deep family roots all across Ontario, kind of a web of connections. and. Um, So the connection is is quite deep there, and um, my my father got his PhD at Columbia University in 1934 in uh, French literature and history of science, and uh, in the 30s there were very few academic jobs of any sort in Canada, and he ended up uh, spending his whole teaching career in the States, uh, mainly at Brown University, so I was born in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, so that's how it happened. That um, you know, he's a Canadian who actually never gave up Canadian citizenship, always had a green card, and uh, uh, stayed in the states until he retired to back to Ontario in uh, 1972. So, um, many, many connections there, many relatives, many ancestors, uh, one of whom was his grandfather, Edgerton R. Young, who was a Methodist missionary and preacher who uh, served in Northern Manitoba for a number of years and, um, ended up writing about that experience and preaching about it and so on. And, um. That was one source of interest in, for me in the Northwest, in, in Ontario, in Manitoba, as well as Ontario. And um, when opportunity offered, I carried on looking at family documents and then archival documents more broadly and getting very interested in the uh, stories of the Indigenous people whom he knew and... Um, also, going farther back, the fur trade.
0: You describe yourself as an ethno-historian, and uh, perhaps erroneously, I've always thought of this as someone who combines the use of primary documents on the, on the one hand, that's the typical historian, with ethnographic sources that are typically generated by anthropologists uh, in their role as participant observers. What I'm really interested in is what is your definition of ethno history and why do you invariably describe yourself as an ethno historian?
1: Well, it's been my primary professional identity, I guess, for a long time. I see the field, I guess I rejoice in the field, um, as an interdisciplinary field, one that crosses boundaries between departments, between disciplines, so that Ethnohistory involves, yes, working with documents, original documents. It also involves um, many other things, Um, oral history, for example, archaeology, um, uh, linguistics. I think the, the defining point about it is that one listens as best one can to information that comes from all these different sources, and uh, tries to weave them together. And um, yes, it's anthropology and history, but it's also drawing on linguistics, on issues of translation, for example, archaeology. And all of these sources can feed in to give us a better picture of the indigenous people of the past and their relations with um, outsiders, newcomers.
0: Well, let's start with your most recently published book, Ojibwe Stories from the Upper Barrens River. You told me earlier that the theme in this book has really been a constant in your life. So, what is the common theme, or what are the common themes that run through not only this book, but uh, your life uh, as a historian?
1: I think it comes back to documentary history as as prime, really, I'm interested in how we read historical documents and how we read them closely as carefully as we can to understand the writers and the people behind them and the um, all of the voices that, that are woven into those documents. And so I find that a lot of my work has involved Going back to um, uh, the Barron's River documents that you've mentioned, um, also fur trade documents. um, One particular person of interest was George Nelson, a fur trader who wrote really interesting materials that were never published and um, were very expressive of his um, outlook and his feelings, his way of life, um, in a more personal way than was true of many um, better known fur traders. And um, so I, I think that's a common link, is trying to get back to the, the, uh, the sources and understand them in the deepest way that we can, Put the, putting them in context, understanding the voices that speak through them.
0: I was fascinated by uh, Adam Bigmau's stories and the way in which he told them to American anthropologist A. Irving Hollowell. Can you tell us a bit about both of these individuals?
1: Well, Hallowell was an American anthropologist who taught most of the time at the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. And um, he got into doing original fieldwork in Manitoba in 1930, was his first visit up there along the Barrens River, and he got to know the people very well, and he found that um, no other anthropologist had worked there before. The people were not well known. Um, They retained their language, their Ojibwe language, very strongly. Um, And they welcomed him, I think, because he was interested in them, and so many white men who came through were prospectors, fur traders, whatever, there for their own interests, and Hallowell was there to learn as much as he could about about the people. So he really established a good relationship with them, and uh, one of the people he met was Adam Bigmouth at uh, Little Grand Rapids, about uh, 50 portages up the river, and uh, they began to work together, especially in 1938 and 40, and Adam I think, really trusted Hallowell and really related to him well. And so they sat for hours with um, William Behrens, the chief from the mouth of the river, the Ojibwe chief, who was bilingual and served as interpreter. And Hallowell just wrote as fast as he could. He didn't have a tape recorder or a video camera or anything of the sort. He just took enormous numbers of notes, recording all of the stories that Adam was willing to tell him. And um, so it was uh, a, evidently a, a very cordial relationship. And uh, Halliwell never got around to publishing those stories, most of them himself. So they sat for a long time in archives in Philadelphia and in the uh, Philosophical Society there. And when I was working on those materials, I um, began to make photocopies, as one does, of material and uh, copied a great many of the stories. And there they sat until I retired and I had time to really discover how important and interesting they were. And so that's when I started the process of uh, transcribing and reading them closely and uh, decided that they really needed to be brought forward as, as very important source materials.
0: A while ago, you published something that was reproduced by the Champlain Society and how to edit historical um, journals, diaries, and narratives of this type. So how exactly did you edit this exchange and then provide us with the context for each of the vignettes that you presented?
1: Well, I think what really helped was that I'd been familiar with the Hallowell work his writings and so on from the 1970s onward, really. Two of my professors at the University of Chicago had actually studied as students with Hallowell. So um, I've, I've mentioned at times that he was kind of an intellectual grandfather to me. And I, I knew his work. I respected it. I thought very highly of it. And when I moved to Manitoba, suddenly the opportunity was there to establish contacts with Barron's River people to actually visit the places that Hallowell had visited, and so on. And um, so that provided very rich context for um, looking at Adam's stories, and um, also identifying the people he mentioned, sort of doing the kinship links, who were all the connections that turn up in the stories, and um, also understanding the, um, the different Beings about whom he told stories, the, the Windigo and the other creatures, the other, as Hallowell called them, other than human persons, who, uh, who appeared in people's dreams, who appeared in their life experience, and um, who turn up in the stories that Adam tells. So I, I had very rich context um, after having worked with a lot of this material for quite a long time. And so I felt I really could do him justice, I hope, in those stories. So you describe Hallowell's influence in terms of your own
0: approach. Are there areas where you differ from Hallowell?
1: Well, I think I differ in the sense that the fields of scholarship have changed so much um, in ways that he couldn't have imagined. Um, you know, nowadays, there, it's not only technical, that people have, have tapes and videos and ways to record in all sorts of ways that Hallowell never had. Um, but also the issues of um, uh, working in, in Indigenous communities. Um, Hallowell started out with, with uh, very warm permission from uh, Chief William Barrens at the mouth of the river. To uh, work with people and and um, meet them and and uh, uh, begin to understand them. Nowadays, of course, the issues of, of consent and consent forms and and prior permission and and so many different things that that uh, cast fieldwork in it in a very different light. So um, so that's a difference. But I guess I felt that. I could go back to to Hallowell's work, uh, kind of on 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 his terms, understanding his context, and appreciating uh, what he was doing uh, quite deeply. In a time when he didn't have the the means or strictures or structures or whatever um, that uh, that field workers face in the present time. So it was a different time. And uh, in a way, as an ethnohistorian, I sort of rejoice in having the, the treasures of this material to work with and to bring them forward into the present, um, supplying context and background information and notes, footnotes, notes of all sorts as best I can.
0: Band show up again in your book of essays, uh, the ethnohistorian in Rupert's Land, and in fact, it's the entire focus of your final chapter in the book. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about William Barons, the Ojibwe chief, who uh, spoke two languages, his own and English, and combined uh, in his own way, as you put it, two bodies of knowledge and experience. How did Chief Barrens navigate the two worlds of Ojibwe spirituality or cosmology and the Methodist theology that he received growing up?
1: I think he had a very open mind. Um, he lived at the mouth of the river where all sorts of people came by, and he made a point of meeting everybody who came by and stopped at the mouth of the river, met missionaries and traders and prospectors and and settlers and all sorts of people who came by. And he was interested in talking to all of them. And his father had given him some very good advice, his father, Jacob Barons. He had said um, to his son, don't think you know everything. You will see many new things in your life and you will find a place in your mind for them all. And I thought that was a wonderful saying. and it just it expressed William Barron's attitude of openness and uh, interest in learning. And when he met Halliwell, Halliwell was such a good listener and just interested in hanging around and talking to him in depth. Um, they established a very good relationship. And um, I think William Barron's also found that talking with Hallowell as an outsider, it it reinforced his own um, sense of himself as an Ojibwe person, because Hallowell really valued those traditions and valued um, the history and valued the people. And so it was affirming, I think, for William to have that relationship. And for Hallowell, it was very, very special that over the next seven years, Um, In the summer times, he could return to visits to uh, Barron's River, and they could go up the river together and meet um, William Barron's relatives uh, up the river who were very hospitable to them. And uh, so the relationship was was very strong, and it was reciprocal. And, um, you know, they each got different things out of the relationship. But they both had reasons to... Appreciate it and stick with it. Well, just before
0: uh, I ask you about the reciprocal nature of the relationship, it sounds like it was very much reciprocal on both sides. We should tell our readers where the Barrens River is in terms of uh, it's a river that flows into Lake Winnipeg uh, in sort of the north central part of Lake Winnipeg on the east side um, and uh, it goes by various names, but the uh, it's uh, g- generally known as the Little Northwest. Let's get back to William Barron's again and Hallowell. To what extent was their relationship reciprocal?
1: Well, uh, how could I say? Um, of course, uh, Hallowell was was paying William Barron's. He was also paying some other... Uh, men who helped with the travels up the river. And, uh, so there, there was, there was some material return involved. Um, uh, another interesting thing is that Halliwell, when he came, he knew enough, he understood enough that when he came, he also came with gifts. He came with, with, uh, things that people could use. They, uh, Canned food, um, clothing, tobacco was a big thing. Um, tobacco was a, an important uh, relationship builder, um, and uh, so he was appreciated on, on on that front from the material side, but also the fact that um, they understood um, that he had he was bringing them useful things uh, and. Um, So there there was a benefit in that way. Um, But as I say, I think the fact that um, he was such a good listener counted for a lot because um, nobody else was listening. No outsiders were listening to them in the way that Hallowell did. Um, You know, spending hours with them, um, uh, recording as best he could, writing as fast as he could. And really paying attention to what they were staying, saying and trying to understand his, um, uh, they were trying to understand him, but he was trying to understand their concepts, their philosophy, their way of thinking. And language entered in here in a very important way. He never became fluent in Ojibwe, But he latched on to key concepts, and he would try to understand them as best he could. And um, so the whole issue of translation is very, very important in his work. And he knew the issues around translation, how difficult it was. And he really paid attention to trying to understand what people were trying to explain to him.
0: Now, Chief um, Barons took him to... uh upriver, and they met some uh, an individual named Fair Wind. Can you describe this person and what this introduction and subsequent conversation really opened up for Hallowell?
1: Well, Fair Wind, or Namawan as they called him in Ojibwe, was a, a relative, a, a clan relative. The Ojibwe people have clans. Um, William Barons was a member of the Moose clan, so was uh, was, uh, Fairwind and uh, his relatives up the river. And the responsibility of clan members, people of the same clan, was that you were to be hospitable, you were to be uh, friendly to them, and recognize them as relatives, as cousins and so on. And uh, so that established a base for a relationship. And um, Fairwind was, uh, he was very elderly at the time, and he was, he was blind. But he was very interested to meet Hallowell and to um, try to explain things to him. There's an interesting episode where Hallowell at one point in his career was trying to use Rorschach tests and giving people these funny pictures. Uh, that would be interpreted in a psychological way, and um, so uh, Fairwind couldn't see, but his relatives were looking at these pictures, and he was listening to Hallowell uh, talking to them, and uh, so Hallowell was remembered as as someone who you know came along and showed these funny pictures to people and asked them about them, and um, one of um, one of William Barron's descendants later on who who, who met him and who looked at these pictures, uh, he said rather simply and wisely, I think, well, I think that Hallowell was trying to understand how an Indian thinks. And uh, that was about as, as simple an explanation as you could give. Um, but um, the, the back and forth over time is is interesting. And the fact that uh, Hallowell kept coming back uh, on about five different summers going up the river and seeing the same people over and over again and meeting uh, Fairwind, meeting Adam, meeting these other people, so that they knew who he was and they, they recognized him when he came.
0: Well, let's move from the Anishinaabeg of northern Manitoba now to Uh, northern Saskatchewan and Isle of La Crosse. I was interested in your essay on Charlotte Small, the wife of fur trader and explorer David Thompson. And of course, she grew up in uh, Isle of La Crosse. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Charlotte Small, the history behind this essay and what her life tells us about the role of women in the fur trade.
1: Okay. Well, some years ago, there was a uh, there were a number of celebrations around David Thompson because it was his the anniversary of of some of his major discoveries and his his major mapping of, um, of the Northwest, which was a, a really seminal important thing the the mapping that he did. So, uh, a number of us um, realized that Charlotte was a pretty important figure, his his wife, and had been neglected, and the um Historic uh, sites and monuments people in Ottawa asked me if I would do a report on Charlotte, uh, an an academic report that could be used as a basis for recognizing her as a person of distinction, historical importance. So I undertook that, and uh, it was a challenge because uh, there weren't any of her own writings around. Um, There were accounts of her. There was a Uh, you know, her her long relationship, her long uh, marriage to uh, David Thompson, 50 50 years or more, I forget how many years, but um, uh, there was a certain amount of of, uh, uh, speculation involved. Um, But nonetheless, I could figure out quite a bit. Um, Her father had been um, a Scotsman named uh, Patrick Small, who left when she was around six or seven. There's no sign of an ongoing relationship there. He he was a Northwest Company fur trader who came and, and established some relationships, and then he left, and he went back to uh, Scotland. And um, so she was brought up Cree. She was brought up by her Cree relatives, and her first language was Cree, and uh she was steeped in that way of life. And when she met David Thompson, uh, it became a, a, a relationship that was important to him because she could be so helpful to him in various ways because of her ties with the people and her knowledge of the language and so on. And, um, and uh, there seemed to be really some a fresh affection between them and the relationship went on forever. Um one issue that has arisen around Charlotte is that a good many people wanted to call her Metis because she had a Scottish father. And I argued against this because she was totally brought up as Cree, her her relatives were all Cree, Cree was her first language, and Metis in the seventeen eighties and so on when this relationship began, uh Metis was not a Category that was on the scene <laughs> in that region, and uh, so she she always uh, was, uh, you know, primarily identified as Cree and um, Métis. seemed to be kind of an, an imposed category that came afterwards by people who were going by criteria of of blood, really race, saying, well, she's half Scottish and half Cree, so therefore we can call her Métis. And uh, I objected to that. In Chapter
0: 11 of uh, your Rupert's Land book, um, you uh, go back to your early career as a scholar, and it always has struck me that 1980 was a a real major year in terms of the intellectual history in Canada, because that's the year that you're Strangers in Blood book appeared, and that's the year that Sylvia Van Kirk's book, Many Tender Ties, uh, came into being. And, uh, you know, in, in other circumstances, you'd think that two scholars who are working in somewhat the, the same area, but both making major discoveries and presenting quite original work at the same time might be rivals. But you actually worked very closely together. Uh, and collaborated. What drew the two of you together?
1: Well when I was starting my research I had to write to the Hudson's Bay Company archives which were at the time in London and request permission to use their documents uh, which were also available on microfilm in Ottawa but I had to have their permission so I wrote to, uh, to, to them and I got a letter back saying well yes we can give you permission but you should know that miss van kirk is doing her uh, doctoral degree at the university of london and is working on these archives and she's working on a on a related topic of uh, women in the fur trade and uh, you know maybe you might like to be in touch with her so i wrote right away and introduced myself and told her what i was doing and she wrote back right away and said She was glad to be in touch, and yes, we had interests in common, and uh, she wrote a little bit about her approach because she was doing a history degree and I was doing an anthropology degree, so we compared notes a little bit on that. But we were going over many of the same materials. We were interested in many of the same fur trade families, and uh, we just began conversations that continued... All along for a good many years. And uh, yes, we both noticed that um, you know men scholars did not always establish these kinds of relationship and, um, <laughs> and uh, you know it was of interest that we were both women and we were both delving into fields that the male historians had really ignored. So we were we had that common sense of discovery, Um, That yes, there were families and women and children and all sorts of people connected in the fur trade whose stories had never been told because everyone was so focused on the great men. So there was was quite a commonality there, and uh, it just continued and and, uh, was very productive, I think.
0: Well, let's move from the early 1980s to the present, and this might be a little bit of an unfair question, but... What do you think is the contemporary relevance of your work to today's Canada in light of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and other efforts to deal with our past as Canadians?
1: Well, the whole issue of the past is, is very fraught. <laughs> and um, I'm reminded of the, the phrase, and I didn't go back and find the, the origin of it, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there and so my feeling has been that coming from the present and working in the present so many people don't come to grips very much as might as, as they might with the past and what went on in the past and what people were really thinking and what they were really doing and and uh, i just uh, i guess my concern with documentation again going back to the documents uh the primary sources realizing that primary sources are imperfect and you never get all the way back to what people actually thought and did and so on but you do the best you can and uh, so As I look at the issues of of missionaries and schooling and and the fur trade and many other things, um, I'm interested in finding those voices from the past um, and listening as best as we possibly can. And we don't always like them in the present time. They said things we don't like. Uh, They did things that we certainly don't like. Um, but how do we get back to the question of context? And I think context is is all important. Uh, so I'll just take one quick example uh, that I think helps to put this together, if I may. Um, one hears quite a bit these days about Mother Earth, the concept of Mother Earth, and it's become a quite powerful concept in Uh, current um, indigenous uh, spirituality among many people. And uh, it's it's become quite widespread. Well, historically speaking, in Canada, the concept of Mother Earth never appeared in the older sources. It never appeared until the 1970s or 80s in Canadian thinking and Canadian writing, in, in indigenous writing in Canada. And I've been working with a Cree scholar, Keith Goulet, in northern um, Saskatchewan, who's just completing his PhD at the University of uh, Regina, actually. And he's worked a lot on this concept, and he's pointed out that in Cree, um, mother is an animate category, grammatically, and earth is inanimate And when you put the two of them together in Cree, or in Ojibwe for that matter, it doesn't work grammatically because they are grammatically two very different categories. And so there's a kind of a a violence in a sense that's done to the language. If you try to talk about Mother Earth in Cree, and people find various ways around this, which he has explored, but his basic point is this is not a historical pre-concept. It's been brought in in recent times, and you can understand in the current context why it's popular and why it's strong, but uh, in terms of history, it wasn't there. So um, this is just one example of, um, I think, where work with indigenous languages and indigenous categories and indigenous scholars is is really important to gain these uh, these deeper perspectives
0: i'm so happy that you mentioned keith goley he's an old colleague of mine i used to in fact work with him when he was in the cabinet of the government and i was cabinet secretary and uh, i was very familiar with his doctoral work and i um, pleased to hear about this collaboration. So Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> thank you. My guest today was Jennifer Brown. She is the author of Ojibwe Stories from the Upper Barrens River, a. Irving Hollowell and Adam Bigmouth in Conversation, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2018. She is also the author of An Ethnohistorian in Rupert's Land, Unfinished Conversations, published by the Athabasca University Press in 2017 and available through open access. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallton. This interview was recorded on December 4th, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.